there, and welcome to Faith in Capital. Uh, also, welcome to our third Sunday of Advent episode. Sorry, letter to the Thessalonians and the Gospel of John. You didn't make this week's cut, which kind of says something since I've incorporated a piece of every scripture of Advent so far. But Paul was seriously, like, really boring me, and the writer of John was obsessively trying to convince his audience that John the Baptist was a follower of Jesus, and not at all his equal, let alone the Messiah, which is something that, like, people were actually debating in the first century. And so the text provided us uh, by the lectionary gods that we will be engaging for our third Sunday of Advent are Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, 8 through 11, which is probably, you know, sending a, a flag to some of you out there, uh, Psalm 126, and Luke 1, 46 through 55. And I'll tell you what, Isaiah wasn't pulling any punches. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Isaiah 61 because it's one of the go-tos for Christian leftists and progressives who want to talk justice or debt cancellation or prison abolition or freedom in general, right? Verses 1 through 3 reads this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, to display his glory. Okay, so today I'd like to start off by asking three questions. The first one is, are you among the oppressed to whom good news must be brought? Then I want us to ask, what are the masses of working people mourning today? And thirdly, what must be done about the faint spirit of the people? So let's start with oppression. So many folks today fail to understand that they themselves are economically and politically oppressed. People are like, well, I've got a car and a TV, or I'm paying on a mortgage, or I live in the United States, or I'm a white dude who went to college, or maybe I, I make a comfortable income and go on a vacation every year. And these things apparently disqualify people from the, dis from the position of being oppressed. I mean, you know, I, I made the best mac and cheese the other day. <laughs> I couldn't possibly be oppressed. But God, if there wasn't this thing called Marxist class analysis... I think one of the greatest barriers that prevents revolutionary people's movements from emerging is capitalist ideology. That is also, of course, wrapped up with things like American exceptionalism and whiteness here in the U.S. Because the masses of working class people in the U.S. in particular have internalized the belief that they couldn't possibly be oppressed because they carry an iPhone around in their pocket and can afford to buy a $4 Starbucks drink once in a while especially people who think of themselves as white or identify as middle class or perform more mental labor or for wages rather than, you know, more physical labor. They are raised to believe and are constantly being told that they are the freest individuals who have ever freely and individually willed their lives into being. But this couldn't be farther from the truth. If we hope to organize and transform our communities, we need to expand our notion of oppression and our category of the oppressed. 
progressives are familiar with racial oppression and gender depression, but we also need to think about the exploitation and oppression of workers at the workplace and the working class at large. Workers are people who have absolutely no say whatsoever about what they'll be doing at work or how hard they'll be working or how many hours a week they really have to work. I just got a new job at a dialysis uh, as a dialysis technician working with folks who have kidney failure, right? And you know what? Dialysis doesn't exist because you know we're a people-driven world. Dialysis exists because the highest paid executive of my company makes about $4,600,000 every single year, which is about 200 times what I, the worker, make every year. Workers don't control the fruits of their labor or the products their collective labor power produces. It's all stripped from their hands every single day by the capitalists that govern them. This class division on the micro level is incredibly oppressive, and it's time we do ourselves justice and name the violence that is done to ourselves, our loved ones, and our neighbors every day by our bosses as oppression. But the working class is bigger, right, than simply the individuals who directly produce products for bosses for wages in return. The masses of working class people also labor at home and in schools and in religious institutions and in hospitals, reproducing exploitable bodies, exploitable minds, and exploitable spirits. This whole upper, middle, and lower class stuff is ridiculous. I don't care if you've got a household income of $200,000. Ashley and I, with a combined 80 hours a week, will now make about $60,000 a year. And I still think households that make quadruple what we make have more in common with us than they do the ruling class. If you are employed, if you depend upon and reproduce the labor of someone who is employed, you are not in some middle class. And you are definitely not among the ruling class. You are working class. You're a worker. You're a producer and a reproducer. Your body and your mind is just an instrument of labor to someone above you. It doesn't matter if you work from home or if you're a professor. Because the ruling capitalist class, which here in the U.S. is made up of a few thousand families, are dominating the national and a lot of the global economy. You don't employ thousands of workers. You don't possess thousands of people's debts. You don't individually have any real power over what is built or not built in your neighborhood or... You even have like a couple hundred million dollars away in investments. We have to fucking wake up and see that the, that middle class identity and white identity is just bullshit buffer politics. They are created to divide us and keep us from organizing and fighting for power with people who may legitimately be worse off than us. You know, like, I'm not homeless. I make more than people who make less than me. I work less than people who work more than me. I can afford my ridiculously expensive inhaler. I'm racialized as white and gendered as man everywhere I go. I was born into the most ruthless imperial power ever to have existed. I have two master's degrees, right? But I know that I have more in common with the black trans person living in a fucking tent tonight than I do with my bosses or Charlotte Bankers or President Joe Biden. You aren't deciding the future of your children's education. You aren't able to dump millions into lobbying that privatizes health services most needed by our elders. 
You aren't powerfully deciding where gentrification will occur next in your city. You are working class. And you may also be oppressed because of race, religion, ability, sexuality, right? Forms of oppression that are more popularly recognized. But we have got to expand our notion of oppression and help our neighbors understand that contrary to the popular saying, they can complain and they should. And after complaining, they should collectively fight for power, but I'll leave it at that. The point I'm, I'm just trying to make uh, is that lots of folks who think they aren't oppressed are very much excluded from any real economic and political decision-making that goes on in their workplace, town, city, state, country. So how could you not see yourself as oppressed? We've got to bring good news. But we can't get people to participate in bringing of good news to this world until they understand that they, too, need some good news in their life. If you want to be charitable to others, right, just get out. But if you understand that you are the people and you need the people, then join others in solidarity and fight every last goddamn system of death and exploitation. Next, what are the masses of people mourning today? I've got coworkers who are mourning the aching of their bodies. We are overworked. We are underpaid. And it's harrowing to think that billions of people across the world today are mourning their lives, are mourning how possessed their life is by work, by the boss, landlord, and debtor, by the need for wages. But the stressors and meaninglessness of work you know, aren't the only things that people are mourning. Many have lost people to COVID-19 have wrestled with illnesses and diseases, have worried about the cost of medication, and people are tired of both getting sick and being afraid to get sick. Perhaps some of us are mourning due to violence and harassment experienced by the armed wings of the state. Brandon Bernard became yet another black body executed by the United States. Or, we are mourning the loss of a loved one who was ripped away from our lives because the system was made to rip people apart. Perhaps folks are mourning uh, even like a future that seems fairly likely to come. What are people in your community mourning? And how might you participate in the binding up of the brokenhearted, the comforting of those who mourn? And when you ask this question about your community specifically, don't just think short-term binding up and comforting, right? Like we said during the second Sunday of Advent, what kind of comfort work can be done that has the long-term goal of ending the realities that cause your people's mourning? And the third question that jumped out to me here was, what must be done with the faint spirit of our communities? Right? What must happen if the faint spirit is to be turned into a mantle of praise and oil of gladness? The depths of despair and hopelessness understandably plague our neighbors as much as they plague our own souls. How, how could we possibly imagine a, a powerful struggle, right? Let alone the actual conquering of power and the realization of communities of love. How could we even dream of black freedom and indigenous sovereignty and an end to capitalism's gender division of labor or even small wins against landlords, bosses, and the cops? How could we dream of an end to all imperialism? I recently read through a short book called Y'all Trying to Win or Nah with the United Tenants of Charlotte crew. And one of the things the organizers were talking about in that book was the fact that most communities that we are trying to organize 
and have no historical memory of any real organizing happening in their neighborhood, right? And without this historical memory of radical organizing, many folks struggle to even imagine fighting, let alone winning, against the racist and capitalist and sexist forces of evil that rule our communities. Yet workers and slaves and non-men and sexual non-conformists and black people and indigenous communities and persons of color and religious minorities and immigrants and ordinary people have fought for their lives and have fought for power before. Many exploited, oppressed, and mourning people have given their lives for dignity and well-being and have won. The resistance of U.S. uh, imperialism by the Bolivian and Venezuelan peoples are current battles that give us hope. And, And so the faint spirit in our communities must be countered with the raging and convicted spirit of people organized and radicalized in fights for revolutionary transformation. As Christians, we shouldn't be a people of despair, bent over and overwhelmed by the weight of the world. Rather, we should be committed, as Thomas Sankara was for his people in the face of imperialism, to empowering our neighbors to stand upright. So, in those first three verses, I thought we could, one, expand our notion of the oppressed. Two, we could listen to what our neighbors and co-workers are mourning today. And three, we could enable those with a faint spirit to stand up right. Wouldn't that truly be a year of the Lord's favor, a day of vengeance of our God? And in verse 4, we read, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devas- uh, devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. But perhaps it is important to make clear that we are not interested in repairing some ruined past, nor are we deceived into thinking we are making more perfect a project that has slowly been progressing forward. While the author imagines a remaking of something in the past or a perfecting work that culminates in the future, I think we should resist the reformism that this text is often taken to suggest. There is no making the United States a more perfect union because its union is a bourgeois white patriarchal union an imperial union of the ruling class. And so we shouldn't be trying to perfect this union. We should be seeking its destruction and then its replacement with a union wholly other. As important as some of these uh, movements and events are for the time being, we can't defund and protest our way out of this world. Power must be conquered by the people. We must organize locally and radicalize the consciousness of our neighbors and co-workers, or this union will remain a union whose power is conquered by a ruling class, not the masses of working and colonized communities. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Let's talk about love and hate. Love and hate are not mutually exclusive in this text. To love some things is to hate others. You can't, you, uh, you, you can't love all things, right? Because some things are not just in contradiction with one another, but they are antagonistic toward something else. You cannot love both justice and robbery and wrongdoing. You know, nor, you, nor can you hate robbery and wrongdoing and justice. 
We have to learn to love the one and hate the other. But hate is such a powerful emotion, clearly a racialized, gendered, and classed concept that most people don't want to be identified as people who hate things, right? No one wants to be said to be hateful or emotional. But aren't we Christians for socialism and against capitalism? Aren't we anti-racists against structural anti-blackness and white supremacy? What about feminists for gendered abolition and against gendered oppression? Like the God we read about in this text, we must become a people who explicitly love justice, right? We obsess about it. We uncontrollably long for it. And a people who unabashedly hate robbery and wrongdoing. And to be clear, poor people are not the thieves. Workers are not thieves. Colonized nations are not thieves. It's capitalists who are thieves. Imperialists are the wrongdoers. Bosses and developers and landlords and their militarized forces are the ones who commit the acts that we hate. Let me tell you what I also hate. I hate that my working poor grandmother, who lost her husband after 20-some years of marriage, heated her house in the winter with a fucking oven. When Trump was elected president, she said maybe Trump will build the transportation system that she needed in her rural community in, in Kentucky as an elderly person. I hate that my wife and I have long had to financially choose between saving for education, becoming parents, or getting out of the landlord-tenant relationship. I hate that I spend the majority of my waking hours prepping for, stressing about, and laboring at work. I hate that my parents' mental and physical health have suffered because of working conditions and right-wing religious communities fashioned in the image of fascism rather than love. I hate that I live in a city constituted by capitalism and racial apartheid, all the while Democrats bullshit people by pretending to give two shits about working class and and underemployed black people. Should we not boldly love justice? and boldly hate wrongdoing. And then there was the song of the mother in the Gospel of Luke. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, Mary sings to us. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Can you imagine dragging capitalists out of their multiple multi-million dollar mansions, Dragging them out of their offices and skyscrapers. Dragging them off their private jets in private islands and private yachts. Mary says God throws down the powerful from their thrones. And she also says the lowly are no longer made to be lowly. Their bent over backs begin to straighten and they begin to stand upright. The hungry, we might say in conversation with Mary, must come to conquer power. They must be filled with good things, right? Good conviction, good hope, good consciousness, and good strategy. And the rich must be prevented from ever becoming rich again. Because to make one's self rich is to make many other selves lowly. That is how this game has always worked. Who are the powerful in your town, in your city, in the world, that the God of Mary wants to tear down? What thrones do the powerful need to be collectively striked out of? Or 
when strikes are met with police and military repression, dragged out of? Who are the hungry in your community? And do you see them as your closest friends or your charity case? There's no space here for paternalism, just a magnifying of the liberating work of God in the sending the rich away empty. Seriously, the electionary gods weren't playing, you know? <laughs> Lots of good stuff here to engage, um, and I've got two short little points left, so let's wrap this up. The prophet in verse 11 tells us, quote, For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. I think Advent is such a wonderful time to talk about what we want to sow. And as revolutionaries and abolitionists, I believe we should be a people who sow hope, sow conviction, sow passion and fervor, sow critical reflection. As Christians, we ought to sow love and sow hate. And we do these things because we long for a world, as the psalmist alludes, constituted by joy and laughter. We reap what we sow, the saying goes. And so let us be conscious of and explicit about the seeds we are sowing in the world we long to reap. If you've uh, appreciated the Advent series, do me a favor and rate the show on iTunes. And if you've got a penny or two, patron support is always uh, super, super appreciated. So thanks all. And I'm praying with and for the people this Advent. Thank you.